Hi, I'm Mecky. And I'm Tammy. And we're the hosts of Food with Politics. Yep, where Tam and I talk food, quick and easy recipes we love. And politics, current events, and issues affecting our lives. All right, Tam, we're back. We're back and... I have the recipe this week, right? You do. And I'm actually excited about this because you know how I feel about coffee. Yeah, girl. I, we both, I think we're both addicted. I'm addicted. I know yeah. I am. I get those. Well, headaches, right? Yeah. You get headaches and me too. If I, if I stop drinking for like a day, I get that like painful headache and like my, it goes through my searing through my <laughs> left eye. <laughs> I think I'm going to die. I feel like I have the flu. Yeah, it's crazy. It's not a good yeah. look. It's really bad. That but being I, said, yes, let's go to this. <laughs> um, since we've been in lockdown, I've actually perfected my coffee making skills. Mm-hmm. So most of it has come from your family and then your coffee. Because every time I come to visit you in New York, I'm always impressed with your coffee because you make it so effort- effortlessly. So Thank I've you. tried to perfect my coffee. Yeah, I want to hear about this. I've, I didn't know this. Yeah, so I, I did a little bit more research and I used the Italian press that you use. Uh-huh. But I saw online, if you heat up the water first, then the coffee cooks faster and it doesn't taste as burnt for some reason. Really? Yeah. So I heat up the coffee in the tea kettle and then I pour it into the Italian press. And then Wait, you, I'm sorry, you heat up the water in the tea kettle? Oh yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. I, te- I heat up the water in the tea kettle and then I pour it into the Italian press and then put the coffee in and make it regular. Right. Right. So then it's like a little espresso. And then I put it into the coffee cup and I add ground cinnamon, ground clove, and ground cardamom. Mm -hmm. So I have that. And then actually while the coffee is being warmed up in the Italian press, then I warm up milk in the French press. And then when you, you know how you make coffee in the French press and then you pump it with the little thing, it makes it frothy. So you can pour that into Mm-hmm. the espresso and it makes a latte and it's so good oh and i also use brown sugar instead of regular sugar i use brown yeah. sugar so it gives it like a caramely kind of taste the brown sugar goes after everything though is that right you can put it well you can do it after or you can put it in when you put in the ground cinnamon and cloves and cardamom so you put that part in the in, into the coffee mm-hmm. while it's hot so it all like kind of mixed together and then i pour in the warm milk I'll send a, I'll, i'm gonna put this up on instagram so i'll put a picture up there of how it looks. I'll try yeah, to do it. That's so nice funny. Like that's, you know, the ground cinnamon. I know what you mean by you took some of that. Not, I mean, I, the ground cinnamon cloves and cardamom, you know, that's how we make shy. Yep. I still do. That. That's so funny. That's, I never thought to use. I've, I've done um, ground cinnamon and cardamom before in my mm-hmm. coffee grounds, but never cloves. So do you use like, is it ground cloves or the actual oh, cloves? No, they're ground. So maybe I should put it in the coffee to make that's it easier. No, I mean in the actual grounds. Yeah, like, that's what I do. Okay, I, I that's what I need to do. So it infuses oh. it. Oh, so I'll make it even better. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, girl. Another one for you. <laughs> exactly. Another one. Anyways, girl. So, yes. Um, let's get into the story today. I don't feel like that was the most smoothest transition, but <laughs> let's get in. I mean... <laughs> Sorry, listeners, we're going to get into this story and we're back. And it feels like every time we begin to record a new episode, 2020 seems to break our hearts just a little bit more. <laughs> so first, um, we really want to acknowledge the death of Chadwick Bosman. Yeah. He was only 43 when he passed away last Friday. So Chadwick was a true fighter. 
He battled cancer for four years while still filming Black Panther, Avengers, 21 Bridges, and The Five Bloods. This man, with his portrayal of T'Challa in Black Panther, brought so much joy, pride, and love to so many people and so many young black boys who don't often get to see superheroes that look like them portrayed in blockbuster films. It was truly a game changer. He was truly a game changer. We really do pray for the comfort for his family and those that knew him and were close to him. And we're so sorry to lose him. Yeah, it's a, it's a big loss. Yeah. But I actually found some interesting information when I was looking up Chadwick and looking up his past movies and all of his accomplishments. I found out that Chadwick and Michael B. Jordan were like ships in the night. I don't know if you're aware of this, but they actually were ships in the night on the soap opera, All My Children. That's, an, if, no, I'm sorry. Obviously, I did not know that because yeah. like All My Children is like a, I don't know, 1980s soap opera, but that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, so Chadwick's first role, one of his first roles on All My Children, he was fired because he spoke up about the inherent racial stereotype of his character. Wow. So yeah, he got fired for that because he spoke up. Do you do you know what his character was? What, what was he portraying? Well, um, I don't know the name of his character. I did watch a couple of episodes. But like, what was like, what he, what did he come across as? Like, what was so stereotypical about him? That he was, you're asking too many damn questions. Because <laughs> <laughs> now I'm actually curious. Like, was he like a thug? Was he like a... I'm not sure. I know he came... He, in the episode that I watched, he was in the hospital and he had been stabbed. So oh, okay. So, yeah. Okay. Like so a something, violent, something. Yeah, something he violent. Had All right. Exactly. So he didn't agree with the stereotypes of that character. Mm -hmm. So the person, when he was fired, the person that actually took his place was Michael B. Jordan. But yeah, the silver lining is because Chadwick voiced his opinion, they incorporated all his suggestions for the character before hiring Michael B. Jordan. So Michael B. Jordan benefited from him speaking up. Wow. But they had a lot of nerve firing him. Yeah. Then going to implement his changes. Come on. (laughs) Exactly. But the funny part is I, I... like I told you, I went back and I watched the episodes of Chadwick and then I ep- watched the episodes of Michael B. Jordan. Michael B. Jordan had these cornrows with shells on the bottom of the cornrows. No. <laughs> <laughs> Just no. Uh-uh, little baby shells. Like, like braids on. Look, like, look, it wasn't even like some thick braids. It was a little thin braids and it was like two or three shells. No, ABC. I cannot. <laughs> That's crazy. And then they like reunited at Black Panther. Yeah. And both of them kind of, you know, really, really defined their careers. That's so yeah. crazy. Yeah. Ooh, girl. While we're on the topic of heartbreak, 2020 is really trying it. You know, we're going to talk about Jacob Blake. Yeah. Yeah. So um, last Monday, August 24th, as many of you know, Jacob Blake was shot in the back seven times by police officer Rustin Chesky. In Kenosha, Wisconsin. Mm. This poor man is still fighting for his life. And we now know that he's paralyzed from the waist down. He has a long road to recovery. Mm-hmm. Unbelievably, he was initially handcuffed to his hospital bed, but they finally removed the handcuffs and the incident is supposedly under investigation now, yeah. which is crazy. And which brings us to this topic this week about the history of policing in America. Yeah, this is, this is, I mean, it just seems like each week the topics get heavier and heavier, Mac. I know. And it's like, we always have to sort of motivate and try to keep a sense of humor and, you know, bring information. But yeah, for sure. This is, yeah. And when, you know, when I first talked about this topic, we realized our opinions differ on policing because of our upbringings. 
And as most of you know, Mekki and I are both Black women. But Mech is actually the real definition of an African American. Here you go. <laughs> well, you, you're African descent. 100%. I mean, specifically from Ethiopia, but um, yeah, I wanted to just say you're the true definition of African American. Yeah, this is kind of true, actually. But yes. <laughs> but you come from a two parent home. I'm Black American, but I was raised in a single parent home with my mom, basically, mm-hmm. and my two brothers. So we have different perspectives. Because sure. of our upbringing. Sure. So, and we started this topic to Tam's point, just to back it up a little bit, since we started this podcast and like Tam and I, as you all know, have known each other for over 25 years, there are things that we're still sort of learning about each other, which is right. really great because, you know, our friendship is so old, even though we're like, you know, 30, but um, <laughs> it's, it's really, it's been really interesting. And to her point, we were discussing what happened to Jacob Blake and, and just countless other people in America, other black people in America. And I wanted to know, like, you know, with police, was she ever scared? Was Tammy mm-hmm. ever scared? And if Mama Love, who Mama Love is the name that I used to call Tammy's mom, because, you know, she's Mama Love, if she ever had, quote unquote, the talk with her or her older brothers and what that looked like for her and what she said to me was that she couldn't really remember. So, Tam, tell the listeners what you did. So, yeah, I, I couldn't remember. So I called my older brother and I asked him the same question. I said, did mom necessarily have the quote unquote talk with you? And he said he couldn't really remember. He did remember that my mom, when she was teaching him how to drive, she told him if the cops ever pull you over, listen to what the cop is saying and make sure you follow that. And if you get a ticket, she said, pay it. <laughs> That's what she told him. Wise but, advice. <laughs> yeah. So I realized in talking to him that neither of us were really scared of the, of the police because one of our brothers, he had several encounters with the law and we both lived through his experiences. It's my brother and then the one who had problems with the law and then me. Okay. So, But with him, he was very charismatic. He could talk his way out of most situations, but even still the police were sometimes too aggressive with him. Mm-hmm. So we had disdain for the police, but not real fear. It's interesting. Really interesting. So my oldest brother, the one that I posed the question to, actually told me, he told me this funny story when I talked to him about it. And you could probably relate, Mickey. So he was over in a part of San Diego that would be considered quote unquote urban. Black. <laughs> so it works. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Too black for the whites. Exactly. <laughs> and he was hanging out with his friends. They were out in the street just hanging out. And then the police rolled up and everyone yelled, rollers. And everyone hid except for my brother. My brother was like, um, why y'all leaving? Uh, what's going on? Did I miss something? You know? <laughs> All his little friends are like, we out. And he's like, hmm? But the police are friendly. Exactly. I know you're right, though, because that that probably would have been me. Like, oh, but they're here to help. You know, like, I mean, geez, man, how how times have changed. And yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Like, I understand that. You're right. That's probably a very good approximation of what I probably would have done. I remember a friend in college would always argue with me about not knowing the plight of Black Americans and that he would accuse me of not understanding what Black people and Black men specifically went through at the hands of police. Mm -hmm. You know, he'd talk about how him and his friends would be set up, beaten, cursed at, spat at. I just couldn't believe it. It was like so out of the reality of my lived experience with police and it was so different that I, I, I kind of discounted his experience mm. and it's weird. It's like, I, I feel a bit ashamed about it now, but 
when you don't know, you don't know. Yeah, you and, don't know. Yeah, I don't think you should I, be ashamed. I know. I guess, I mean, I guess not, I don't know how to explain it. Like I was, I was a little bit like, so just so dismissive, you know, and it was something mm. that was just so hard for me to believe. Like they, people weren't taping things at the time, but like he was telling me his actual experience and had I known, I just feel like if I was a bit more aware and I thought I was back then, I thought I was super mm. woke, but like, I don't know. It's just this weird thing where like, I, I thought I knew history and, and knew what was what, but I see things that happen now. And I often think about that friendship. I often think about that relationship and, how absolutely everything he said is what's happening now. Right. You know, and like, it's almost, it's really eerie. Well, you live yeah. and you live and you learn and, and not to like change the subject, but yeah. I remember when I used to work at, in New York at one of my jobs and we would have discussions about racial inequality at work all the time. And there was mm-hmm. this girl who was white and she didn't agree with us. She was just I like, can. yeah, you're like make, basically looking at us. She didn't actually say it, but looking at us, like you're making this up. Didn't then, she write? Was she the one that wrote you the apology? Exactly. I know who yeah. she okay. wrote me an apology. Did she listen to the podcast? I don't know. You Maybe should I send should it. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. Well, yeah, we should reach out to her, but go ahead. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but she she wrote me an apology and said like all the things that I That's really sweet. said I to her. You sent me that. Sent That's me true. That. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you live, you yeah. learn. You live, you learn. So that being said, we all see things through each of our own lenses made up of our own individual experiences. That's true. Which is why I brought up the differences in our upbringings and how that relates to how we see the police. But in preparing for this topic, I didn't know about the history of the police in America and how policing was established. So Mech, why don't you tell us a little bit about the history of the police? Well, Tam, it's a pretty interesting history and the police as we know it today, publicly funded, wasn't actually created until 1838, and of all places in Boston, a full 62 years after the Revolutionary War. So for nearly three quarters of a century, America functioned with no formal police as we know it. And I want you to keep in mind that the Emancipation Proclamation was passed in 1863. But to all of our listeners, remember that because we're going to revisit that. Anyways, policing in colonial America had been very informal based on a for-profit, privately funded system that employed people part-time. If you were rich enough, you paid someone to do it for you. Ironically, it was often a criminal or a community thug. Surprise, surprise. Not too far from the police officers that we have now. (laughs) Right. Kidding. I mean, that's, I don't know, whatever, but like, I shouldn't say that. (laughs) But as you can imagine, that system didn't really work because the men in charge, and remember, they were often criminals or thugs, slept and drank while on duty. And there were people who were put on watch duty as a form of punishment. So remember I was just saying how the first publicly funded police department was established in Boston in 1838? Well, guess why? Why? Thank you. I wanted you to say why. I was waiting for that. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted it to be like... Um, Actually, it's not even that impressive, but in short, rich people, basically. Uh, You know, money. At the time, Boston was a large shipping commercial center. And as I mentioned before, merchants had been hiring people to protect their property and safeguard the transportation of goods from the ports in Boston to other places. So these same merchants came up with a way to save money by transferring the cost of maintaining a police force Mm -hmm. to citizens. They argued that it was for the collective good, hence modern-day taxpayers publicly funding the police. So unlike colonial America, where private merchants essentially paid for police protection in post-colonial America, as we know her now, the police became publicly funded by wealthy merchants, lobbying politicians, and convincing the public that it was for the greater good. 
when really you can argue they just wanted to control the less desirable immigrants, the Italians, Irish, etc. The irony of that, by the way, the Italian and Irish that were coming into the country and essentially wanted a formal way to oppress them. It's so ironic. <laughs> it's, yeah, definitely. But during the whole time we were preparing for this episode, Mike, you kept saying that it's all about money. And you're so right. So while all this was going on in the North and the South, policing institutions were derived from the monetary value of the preservation of slavery. Mm-hmm. The, pol- the policing institutions called slave patrols were responsible for capturing runaway enslaved Africans and preventing the enslaved from revolting. Then the military became the primary law enforcement during the Civil War, enforcing the disenfranchisement of freed slaves and enforcing segregation. As Mech said, the institution of policing didn't become organized until 1838. And shortly after that, there was a birth of vigilantes who had no restraints. They were called lynch mobs and they would hang first and then ask questions later. So just to be more clear, the legacy of slavery and racism did not end when the Civil War ended. Of course not. <laughs> it has been, but it's been argued that it made violence against people of color even worse. Well, I mean, to like look at what's happening now, honestly, like look how angry so many like right wing nationalists and white supremacists are becoming. Like the more they feel like they're losing power, the angrier they are. So that's uh, that's really interesting. That means history just repeats itself, doesn't it? Right. Right. So in looking back at all this history of how people of color were treated so horribly, just to like wrap my head around the violence that has been projected on people of color, I think whites who owned enslaved Africans had to think of blacks as subhuman in order to rationalize their actions. Mm -hmm. The Emancipation Mm -hmm. Proclamation was in 1863 and the KKK was founded in the 1860s. And was notorious for assaulting and lynching black men for transgressions that would not even be considered a crime if it was a white man. Mm -hmm. So what I'm trying to say is the mentality of the institution of policing has not changed. It still is set up for the over-policing of people of color. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's so true. Oh, my gosh. That's... um. Yeah. I mean, this topic has so many layers and I don't feel like we've even touched on the many more things that we need to talk about, um, such as policing methods here and around the world that mm-hmm. have been successful with minimizing crime and connecting to the community. Cause that's a huge problem, right? Like it's right. to your point over policing in, in communities of color is like what we're seeing now with Kenosha, with, uh, George Floyd, with, I don't, I can keep talking about Trayvon Martin, so many different pl- communities where, yeah, Brianna Taylor, it's just like the insane over policing, of communities of color. It, it, that's just a hot, hot button topic, right? It's, it's right. happening now. Uh, we're talking about reforming police. We're talking about defunding police. We're talking about more accountability for police brutality. And there's just so much to discuss. And we didn't touch on this either about the politics of policing as well, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think so for the first time, as far as our show goes, Tam and I talked about diving deeper and continuing this discussion with a part two of the history of policing because we did do a lot of research and we have much more to talk about but we sort of want to break it up so there you go folks that's our lemonade that we're making from lemons today we're going to leave you with that and hit them back next week right yeah so on the next episode airing september 9th we'll continue to talk about the history of policing and share we'll share with you examples that we found here and around the world that were successful with their policing tactics so tune in next week to hear part two of the history of policing wherever you get your podcast that's right 
And that's how we got for you. Hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoy talking. Do us a favor. And if you like what you heard, spread the word. Woo! And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Food With Politics and subscribe to our podcast. New episodes drop every Wednesday. Talk to you then. Peace. Thank you.